So, as, as Ollie um, uh, correctly uh, said um, just now, the, the, the question really I, I think this passage throws up for us is, is my life now really, is it really governed and shaped by the reality of God's promises for my future? Okay, so we're looking at the final section of the Genesis account of the life of Abraham. It is a big section. That's why we only read bits of it. We'll try and make up for that as we go along. It actually starts in chapter 22, verse 20, with that phrase, after these things. So that's kind of the phrase that kicks off this new section. And then it goes right through till chapter 25 and verse 18, which records Abraham's death and and then the the family tree of his descendants. But it seems to me that the challenge for us from this this big final section is for us to trust in the God of the future. Um, You you see, friends, God's future for us and for our world, his uh, his future of a new heaven and a new earth for, for all eternity, that is a real future even though we haven't experienced it yet. And and in fact, it's so real that it should utterly shape and govern every aspect of our current lives now, which are just a shadow. They're just a foretaste of that full reality to come. But you know, I'm I'm not sure we do that very well, do we? So the challenge of this section, I think, we'll see as we go through, um, is to have the correct perspective on our current existence, which, as we'll see, that correct perspective is to live now with trust in what God has promised about the future, even though we haven't experienced that future yet. And, and, and I think that's what Abraham's been doing, actually, as we've, as we've opened up the, this, this section on, on the life of Abraham, chapters 12 to 25 of, of Genesis. Well, they've, they've shown us in the first half of that, really, they've shown us God's promises, haven't they, in 12 to 17. And, and then from chapter 18 onwards, they've shown us what it looks like for Abraham and for us to live lives of trust in God's promises. So to, to, to cast back, it looks like trusting in the God who is. We saw that in chapters 18 and 19. In other words, the personal God who has revealed himself in his word and made certain promises. Promises that began with those made to Abraham back in chapter 12, but promises which find their fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus, where these chapters are constantly pointing us time after time. It looks like trusting in the God who intervenes, says chapter 20 to us, the God who sovereignly involves himself in our world in order to bring about his promises. That's what he's doing. It looks like trusting in the God who is faithful, says chapter 21, the promise-keeping God who, who lives up to his word so we can take him at his word. Uh, And and then as we saw the last time, a couple of weeks back in in chapter 22, it looks like trusting in the God who tests, that the God who strengthens and deepens our trust uh, through the fires of adversity. And and now in this this final section that covers the kind of the closing years of Abram's life, we're going to see what it looks like to trust in the God of the future. 
we can't cover everything in these chapters. But you can probably see, if you, if you flick through 23 and 24 and the first half of 25, you can, you can probably see there's three stories there, three narratives. There's the, there's the death of Sarah in chapter 23. There's the marriage of Isaac in chapter 24. And then there's the death of Abraham in chapter 25. And I want us just to take a kind of a high-level look, as it were, at each of those narratives to see Abraham's trust in God's promises for the future, for the future of the land, for the future of the people, and for the future of Abraham himself. And then we'll try and tease out some sort of implications for ourselves as, as we go along. So, so let's have a look, first of all, at the future for the land in, in chapter 23. Because at one level, of course, this is a chapter about Sarah and her death. We're told at the ripe old age of 127. Um, But actually, what's striking about the chapter, if you notice, is that there's not really much detail about Sarah's death or or even Abraham's mourning. There's just a couple of verses. But there's a lot of detail, isn't there? Fifteen verses, in fact, about all the negotiations that Abraham had with the Hittites, who who owned the land, in order to buy a burial plot for her. Did, Did you notice that? And we might think, why have we been given all this detail about the burial plot, you know, why, why concentrate on that of, of all things? But friends, it's actually very significant because you'll notice, look in verse 1, that Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. In other words, she died in the heart of the promised land, the land that God had promised to Abraham, but in which he had thus far only been a a, a sojourner, you know, an alien and a stranger, a a temporary resident uh, in the land, verse 4. And and, and what all these details here make clear to us is that the burial cave, the uh, the burial place, the cave of Machpelah, and and the field that it was located in, verse 9, have legally become the property of Abraham. That's what these verses are all leading towards, isn't it? To to the conclusion, look in, in verse 17 and 18, that the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, that the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area were made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Do you see? We've been given all the details of the negotiations so that there's no doubt that Abraham has become a kind of, you know, a bona fide landowner in the land that God had promised him. The contract was lawful and valid, so it was negotiated at the city gate, verse 10, that's kind of the the proper place for for business transactions where it was uh, witnessed by the rulers in the city. Um, Abraham had insisted upon paying the full price for it. Look, verses 15 and 16, even though he'd initially been offered it for free, uh, verse 11. In other words, this is a proper legal transaction that would stand up in a a commercial court, you know, and and the writer gives us all the details so that we would know that. So so why do we need to to know that? Well, it's because it's, it's really the first piece of land that God had promised to to Abraham and his descendants, that they've now actually owned. God has promised it to them, but they didn't own any of it. In in fact, God has so far uh, uh, given very little evidence of of him delivering on that part of the promise. But regardless of that, uh, on the death of his wife, Abraham wants her to be buried in the promised land in a tomb that he personally owns. And he wants that. He wants her to be buried there and him afterwards 
because he knows that somehow, even after he's dead, God is going to deliver on his promise and give him and his descendants the land. Do you see? His, his action here is a sign of his trust in God's promise regarding the future of the land. It matters to him that, that his wife and, and he later is buried here. He goes to great lengths to make sure that, that she is and, and he will be because he's still trusting in God's promise. He's, he's figuring that even if it's not in his lifetime, that God will do it after his lifetime, but he will do it. He's, he's sure of that. And so he wants to make sure that, that both of them are kind of you know, anchored in the land that God is going to give to him and his descendants. And of course, if you read on into the, the book of, of Joshua, uh, you'll know that he does. Uh, God does eventually give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants just as he promised he would. And, and of course, this, this reminds us, doesn't it, what we've, we've seen already, um, that when God speaks his word, he can be utterly trusted to deliver on his word. That's been the case right through these chapters, hasn't it? If you've been following them ever since the the beginning of chapter 12, when God first made those promises to Abraham about land and people and blessing, we've been watching, haven't we? God gradually moving his promises forward, gradually unfolding his plan. And it's made no difference whether Abraham has evidence of of God keeping his promise or not. For for most of his life, Abraham had very little evidence of, of God doing that. But God's been doing it nevertheless. He's a promise-keeping God. We've seen that, haven't we? He's a faithful God who can be utterly trusted even when we see little evidence of him at work. And friends, isn't that, isn't that a huge comfort? Isn't that a great reminder but for us as well that we can trust God for our future as well? Abraham saw little evidence that God would ever give the land to him and his descendants like he'd promised to do. But that didn't matter because he'd learned, hadn't he? He'd learned through the fires of adversity, actually, that God could be trusted to deliver on his promises. And so he was going to trust God concerning the future of the land as well, that God would deliver on that promise too, even though he saw a little evidence of it. And and notice that that Abraham's trust in God's promise, despite the evidence, was not just uh, like an intellectual trust, uh, just just giving his intellectual assent, but it was a trust that led him to costly action. Do you see that? And friends, that's what trust in God's promises looks like, doesn't it? It looks like stepping out, taking action, often costly action on the basis of God's word, because God can be trusted to deliver on his word. And I, I think that's quite a challenge, isn't it? Um, for, for example, we've, we've been noticing, haven't we, uh, in recent months and years, we've been noticing the changing picture for Christians in, in the country at the moment. Uh, as our culture is, is shifting increasingly away from its, its nominally Christian moorings, uh, as it becomes a place where to live and, and speak for Christ is, is becoming, therefore, more costly, isn't it? Now, of course, some parts of the church are simply caving in and capitulating to the culture over this. And, and they're doing it rapidly at the moment, particularly in areas of human sexuality and identity, for example. But, but actually, while Bible-believing Christians will rightly reject that rewriting of our faith like that, 
actually, we can still be tempted just to keep quiet about our faith instead, can't we? Just, just not to share our faith, in part at least, because we want to safeguard the comfort levels that we've got used to. But friends, we mustn't keep our heads down about our faith, must we? Because God has promised a future with him in which we will be praising him for eternity alongside a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And that includes people from here, from, from Ride, from, from our island and our, our country. Now, you might think that the evidence for God doing that at the moment seems a bit slim <laughs> in, in our post-Christian culture. But friends, do it, he will, because he promises it. And so our trust in him to do that, our trust as a local church, needs to be not simply a passive trust, but an active trust. A, a, a trust that goes beyond merely intellectual assent. Oh yes, he'll, he'll do that. But a trust that steps out and takes costly action on the basis of his word. So, um, c- could I ask us, what might such costly action look like for you this morning? Um, I, 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 I kind of pick up at the moment that lots of us, lots of the nation, uh, lots of us uh, here as well, are, are perhaps reevaluating the shape and the priorities of our lives at the moment as we start to slowly come out of this, the other side of this pandemic. And, and friends, I think we need to be very careful as we do that. Um, It may certainly be appropriate for some of us to make sure that we don't overcrowd our lives as perhaps we were doing, some of us were doing before. But actually we need to be very careful because one of the many impacts of this pandemic, it seems to me, is that it's left us with a kind of a, a, a relational atrophy if you like, you know, where, where our, our, our desire and, and to some degree our capacity probably as well to connect with others like we used to has, has been somewhat diminished. You know, many of us have spent so long over this last 18 months or so being disconnected for, from people that it's perhaps left us with a reduced capacity and maybe a reduced desire as well for being involved with others. We've quite enjoyed more alone time. And friends, it seems to me that this is a dangerous place to be because God has designed us, he's created us to connect with others and as his people, he's commissioned us to connect with others. And and so it's going to be costly for for some of us, I think, to properly reconnect both with each other in in our church family and, and, and with our wider friendship Uh, groups and and, and communities as well but friends it's vital that we do because our trust in God's promise to build for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and nation including ours is a promise that kind of it calls us out of our pjs (laughs) doesn't it it calls us away from our box sets okay or our gardens or whatever it might be and into active trust And so if we're engaging in a kind of, you know, post-COVID reassessment at the moment, maybe some of the questions we could ask ourselves are things like, what is our diary going to say over the coming months about our costly commitment to gospel action on the basis of God's promises? How are we going to keep using our gifts and our abilities and our energies towards that end? 
How are we planning to give time to cultivating relationships with people again through which we can commend Christ to, to people? Or how are we planning to give energy to meeting up with each other in the church family in order to spur each other on to the same end? Now, now of course, I, I, I appreciate that for a few of us you know, who, whose health may be actually particularly vulnerable, uh, we might need to be very wise and very cautious in how we do that. Understand that. But friends, for others of us who, who, have, who have not perhaps taken the step of re-engaging and regathering yet, c- could it be that it's not necessarily the, the vulnerability of our physical health that's really holding us back here? Might it be, and I, and I want to say that gently, might it be that this pandemic has allowed our trust in God's promises for the future to perhaps slip from being a real, active trust that results in costly action to something more passive that has maybe just enabled us to to nurture the comforts or, or the fears that we've acquired over that period of time. See, friends, Abraham bought in to God's promise. He trusted that God had a future for the land, and so he bought in to God's promise with costly action. And and as we ease ourselves out of this pandemic into a new season of, of, of gospel work here at Grace Church, what might it look like for you and me in, in this moment and, and in this place to buy in to the promises of God's word and so step out in costly action. What might that look like? So if chapter 23 is about the future of the land, well, chapter 24, look, is about the future of the people. And, and actually, we see the same, the same kind of faith here in, in chapter 24 as we've just seen in chapter 23, actually. God's promise, of course, back in, in chapter 12, was that God had a future for the descendants or the seed of Abraham. It was a future that involved blessing, wasn't it? Blessing for the whole world through the seed of of Abraham. But of course, the the problem, as we've seen in these chapters, is that Abraham and and Sarah were unable to conceive. So so although God had had promised descendants as numerous as the, the grains of sand on the seashore, Abraham and Sarah hadn't seen even one grain yet. Of course, we've been seeing God moving that promise forward, haven't we? Since chapter 21 and the birth of Isaac, the child of the promise. But, but as Abraham approaches the end of his life now, the, the question is, is how is God going to move forward the next stage in the plan? If he's going to bless Abraham with many descendants who will eventually bring blessing to the world, well, Isaac's going to need a wife. And, and not a wife from among the Canaanites, but a wife from among his own people. And and notice it's important for Abraham that Isaac doesn't leave the land that God has promised. And so a wife is going to need to be brought to him instead. Do you see that? Verse 6 of chapter 24, see to it that you do not take my son back there. Or or verse 8, if the woman is not willing to follow you back to the the promised land, well, you'll be free from, from this oath of mine. Do you see? Abraham is trusting God, isn't he? He's trusting that God will continue to fulfill his promise to bring blessing through his descendants, even though he probably won't be around to see it. And and once again, that trust is evidenced in practical action as he makes plans 
for Isaac's future on the basis of God's promise. And you might know the story. It's a lovely story, actually, isn't it? We didn't have time to to read it all, of course. I think it's the longest single story in the whole of the Old Testament. But you you might know the gist of it. Um, We've seen already in verses 1 to 9, Abraham gets his his chief servant to to swear an oath uh, that that he won't get a wife from among the Canaanites, but he'll travel back to his homeland and and his family. He'll get a wife for him there and and bring her back to Canaan to, to marry Isaac, which is a big ask. Isn't it? It's a big ask for, for a woman to agree to that. But Abraham is, is trusting God, and so he's stepping out in practical action on the basis of God's promises. And, and in the remainder of the chapter, which we, we couldn't read, it's the, it's the story of God's remarkable provision of him delivering a wife from Isaac and proving once again that he can be trusted. So the, the servant arrives in, in the region, he meets the, the beautiful Rebecca at the local well, verse 11, who, who agrees to water his camels. It's like not exactly a big deal, you might think, but it turns out to have been exactly the sign that the servant had asked God to give him, to, to show him the person he, he'd chosen for, for Isaac to marry. Um, so, so he goes back with her to meet the family. Turns out she's related to Abraham's family. Uh, there's a bit of interference from her brother Laban. But, but Rebecca agrees to go with the servant to, to Canaan and marry Isaac, and, and, which she does. It's, it's, it's a kind of a beautiful story of God at work, overruling, as it were, to bring the right people to the, the right places at the right times in order to move forward his plans and his purposes for his descendants, uh, uh, Abraham's descendants, to the, to the next stage, as it were. It's a further reminder that that God can be trusted that that he is the God who is involved in our world and its workings in order to bring about his plans and and purposes but but not only is it a story of God at work to bring about his promises but it's a story of Abraham's trust in God's promises you see because Abraham's trust in God has been tested through the fires of adversity he now believes that God will bring blessing to the world through his descendants he doesn't know how God's going to do that he realizes that he isn't going to be around to see it but he knows that God will he knows that God delivers on his word so he's going to take God at his word and not just intellectually but at the level of his decision making as well he's taking decisions on the basis of God's promises knowing that God will deliver and God does deliver but actually friends it goes much further than that doesn't it because what we see in this chapter is God merely moving the plan on to the next stage isn't it but we know where the whole plan is heading don't we where it's ultimate fulfillment lies because with our our new testament glasses on as it were we know that the promise to abraham of blessing for the world through his descendants is a promise that is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of jesus on the cross that's where it's all pointing us isn't it it's pointing us to the one who entered our world as a descendant of abraham which means that if you look through the the ongoing narrative of the bible you know from isaac to jesus you see that it's the story of God doing exactly that over and over and over again, preserving and moving forward the descendants of Abraham until eventually God's own son is born into the world as a descendant of Abraham himself. And that it's through this descendant, through Jesus, 
that God brings, brings the blessing of rescue to, to all nations, as people from among those nations turn and trust in Jesus for, their, uh, for forgiveness of their sins and are restored to, to God, such that we too, through trust in Jesus, then become ourselves the spiritual descendants of Abraham. And you know, friends, as, as Abraham approached the end of his life, if you could visit his family home and kind of flick through his photo albums or whatever, you'd see little evidence of him having numerous descendants. But God had said that he would, and Abraham believed him. He trusted in God's promises. And, of course, Abraham is not the only one that God has made promises to. He's made promises to you and me as well. Promises that are ours as the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who have trusted themselves to the Lord Jesus. The Bible is full of promises to us, isn't it? That the blessings of salvation is, is a few you might know. You know Romans eight twenty eight, where God promises that in all things God is working for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose? Or, or do you know he promises you in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 that if you trust in the Lord with all your heart and, and you don't lean on your own understanding but you acknowledge him in all your ways, he will direct your paths. That's the promise, you know. Or he promises you in, in Hebrews thirteen five, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Friends, these are amazing promises, aren't they? And th- th- those are just a few And friends, here's the thing about those promises and about all of God's promises, that that no matter how unseen those promises might be, no matter how absent God might feel, no matter how hard our circumstances are, no matter how difficult the future might look, God's promises stand. He's faithful. We can trust him. He does what he says. He delivers on his promises. We can take him at his word. So friends, the real question is not, can God be trusted? The real question is, are we going to trust him? In other words, are we going to do what Abraham does here and trust God's promises no matter how unreal they look or how unlikely they appear? Will we come to them, come to him, with with all the anxieties and the uncertainties and the temptations of our lives and admit to him that we don't know how on earth he's going to bring good out of this or how on earth he's going to guide our path through this or stay with us and not leave us through this. But thank him that he promises it. Tell him that we're going to trust him to do just that and then act on the basis of that trust. So chapter 23, the future of the land. Chapter 24, the future of the people. Let's have a look just briefly at the first 18 verses of chapter 25. Um, uh, so turn with me just very briefly to yeah, those, first, uh, those first 18 verses, uh, which I've called the future for Abraham and for us. Um, you, you might think it's a bit funny to talk about a future for Abraham because these verses describe his death. <laughs> um, we, we didn't have time to read them, of course, but you, you can quickly see, look, if you glance through them, that, that after the death of Sarah, he marries again. Look, verse 1. He had other children, verses 2 and 4, and in total he lived to the ripe old age of 175, verse 7, before breathing his last, verse 8, and being buried in the cave of Machpelah with Sarah, his wife, verses 9 to 10. Of course, the promise lives on 
because now that Abraham has died, Isaac becomes the heir of God's future blessing. Verse 11, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. But, but even though Abraham has died, God still has a future for him. And in seeing that God has a future for Abraham, we see also that he has a future for us. This is where I'd like us to finish today. As, we, as we've gone through these chapters in, in the life of Abraham, on several occasions, if you'll remember, we've quoted from some verses in Hebrews 11, haven't we, in, in the Old Testament, where the writer talks about Abraham, the man of faith. And, and when, when you look in Hebrews 11, it, it actually might be helpful if you're quick at knowing how to get to places in your Bible. It might, might be helpful for you to look in, in Hebrews 11. Just, just turn to that. And when we look in Hebrews 11, we find that the writer sees that God has a future for Abraham that is greater and more permanent than anything connected with the land of Canaan. So have a look at Hebrews 11 and verses 8 to 10. So Hebrews 11, 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God." So, so do you notice there how the writer here views the land of Canaan that, that Abraham was promised back in, in Genesis 12? He views it as pointing forward to what he calls in verse 10 of Hebrews 11, the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Or, or if you glance down to verse 16, look, he calls it a better country, that is a heavenly one. Do you see, the writer to the Hebrews sees the land that Abraham was promised as pointing forward to something grander and, and more eternal than merely Canaan. A city with, with God as the architect and the builder, and so with foundations that endure, you know, unlike earthly cities that, that come and go. Do you see, friends, the promise doesn't stop in Canaan, but it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the glorious and eternal future that God has got planned for Abraham as he passes through death and, and into eternity in God's better country. And friends, it's the same for us who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. Because notice that it's received by faith even when there is little evidence of it. By faith. <coughs> Abraham obeyed and went, verse 8. Why? Because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's what Abraham was looking forward to, says Hebrews. That's what he knew was coming, even though he couldn't see it. Death was not the end for Abraham. God had an eternal future for him, an eternal future that he trusted God for, even when he could see little evidence of it. And friends, in the same way, God calls you and me this morning to trust God that this same eternal future is there for you and me. That the Christ who has come once to bring rescue to, to the spiritual descendants of Abraham, those who will place their trust, their faith in, his, in Abraham's God, that Christ is coming again. And when he does, 
that city whose architect and builder is, is God, that better country in which God will make his dwelling with us forever, that city which Abraham was longing to see, will be a reality. Do you believe that? Will you trust God then, like Abraham did, so that you believe what for the moment is promised but largely unseen? That this world, friends, is not all there is. That all this is passing away. That we are just passing through. That it's all just a foretaste of what is to come. That eternity is reality. Do you believe that? And so, will you step out in costly, practical action on the basis of that trust? Will you become a Christian on the basis of it, if you haven't done already, right now? Or or will you let it give you a a sense of gospel urgency and, and so shape your priorities, your decisions, how you use your time, your money, your resources around that trust? That doesn't mean, of course, that this world is unimportant. No, far from it. But surely we don't treat it as though this world is all there is. We don't live as though the wealth, the possessions, the careers, the pleasures, that the security, the physical health of this world were all there is. We live with eternity in mind, such that what we invest in most, what we're concerned about most, what we strive for most, is that which is eternal. Friends, that the career we, we spend the next few decades doing here, important though that is, is of far less significance than what we'll be spending eternity doing. The the earthly safety and security that we become so anxious to provide for for ourselves and our loved ones, important though that is, is of far less importance than their eternal security. And and so surely, friends, if if we truly believe, as, as Abraham did, that God's promise to him pointed forward to the promise of eternity, well, that should lead us to live now in the light of that promise, and so step out in costly action and shape our lives now, our priorities now, in the light of Christ's return. For for, for some of us, that might mean doing now what we know God has been calling us to do and placing our trust in him for the first time so that we may be assured of a place in that eternal city. But for others of us, it it might mean going home and having a a prayerful reassessment of our priorities and the shape of our lives in the light of this eternal and amazing future that is coming. But friends, however we may need to respond, let's do so with solid trust in what may be unseen as yet, but is the sure and the certain promise of our trustworthy God. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you so much that you are faithful to your promises, that that you're faithful to your word, so we can take you at your word, Um, even when those promises are unseen or even when they seem um, unlikely. Um, Father, please help us. Help us to learn from Abraham, the man of faith, so that our trust in you would grow and deepen. 
so, so that it would lead to the kind of costly action in our lives that would commend the Lord Jesus to others, um, that, that, that many more would know the amazing future that awaits those who trust in you. Father, we pray this now in Jesus' name.